everyone. Junior church, four years old through fourth grade. Those going into fourth grade, you are dismissed to walk to junior church. So, um, I've been doing a lot of gardening. Hi, buddy. How are you? That's awesome. I love that. Um, I've been doing a lot of gardening and stuff outside, and, and when you do that, you're on your hands and knees a lot. How many of you really... Did she climb up here? When you're down on your hands and knees a lot, what happens to you? It hurts. Okay? And the older you get, the, sorry, the more mature you get, the more it hurts and the longer the hurt stays. Right? We do not like to be in pain. Have you ever gone and just looked at the pain aisle in one of the stores? They have hundreds of different types of pain medications for remedies and treatments. And while physical pain can hurt our bodies, one of the hardest pains to ever endure is domestic pain, family troubles. We, we can get over the difficulties of work and um, school. Physical, emotional pain can take longer, but we can heal. There is a drastic difference when it comes to our homes and into our families. Family feuds, wayward children, uh, parent-child clashes, husband and wife disagreements, and other in-home pressures have a way of breaking our spirits and, and stealing our joy. Many of the troubles that we experience in our home, we need to just admit it, can be traced to a sin of the father, the mother, or a sin of the children. As we continue our theme this year of pursue, a quest for a godly heart, we've seen many things in the life of David, from being in the background to standing in front of a giant, from simple shepherd, a simple shepherd boy to the king of all of Israel. Through this transition in his life, David has had many victories, victories over his enemies, but he's also suffered several defeats, defeats in his personal struggles, and at the pinnacle of David's life, and at the greatest of his power, David jumps into a series of sins. King David has been involved in an adulterous affair, then he had the husband of that woman murdered and added her to his growing list of wives. God then sent Nathan the prophet to confront David, and he stood before the king and, and told him what no one else would do, and he says, you are that, the man. You are that man. You're the one who took Bathsheba, another man's wife. You're the one who had her husband murdered. You're the man, David. After that confrontation, David finally admitted, I have sinned. Those three words that David said are pivotal in his relationship with God. Unfortunately, those three words did not come out of him sooner. If he would look up to God, repented of his sin, and led him deeper and deeper into sin, perhaps some of the devastating consequences could have been avoided. Although Nathan clearly stated that God has forgiven David, Nathan also announced consequences that David would endure. Second Samuel 12.10 says, From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me, that's God, by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. 
What Nathan is saying here is, David, because you despise God, because you chose to steal and to kill for your own personal pleasure, the consequences are going to be your family follows in these footsteps. Who here likes consequences of their actions? Because we think of consequences as negative. We try to get rid of consequences. Our culture today has actually taken consequences and saying, these are not mine. I may have done the deed, but it's somebody else's fault. They should do the penalty. It's not me. And when it comes to this, what? Didn't God forgive David? God said, I forgive you, so why are there consequences if God has forgiven David? If he has forgiven him, because Nathan told him, God has forgiven you of this, why are there consequences? If God forgives us of our sins, doesn't that mean the consequences should be taken away? There is a difference between forgiveness of sins and removal of earthly consequences. God will forgive me if I got drunk, but I still have to do time for a DUI. In my anger, if I punch a wall, God will forgive my angry outburst, but my hand will still swell up and hurt. There are still consequences. Even though the sin is forgiven, the consequences endure. And we must realize something. This is a hard lesson. We must realize that not everyone who sins in the same fashion will experience the same consequences. What I mean by that is if if two of us do the exact same sin, God may give us two different consequences. God fits the consequences to fit the person. Why God will choose some to experience this consequence and, and another person that one, we don't know because ultimately that's God's business, not ours. He knows what's right. So today's going to be kind of a heavy topic. We're going to go through a brief summary of these, each situation in David's life to see the results of his sin. The first consequence we're going to look at is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food all and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him, David, to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, he's been fasting and laying in the ground, begging God for seven days, for a whole week. On the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill, they said. What drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. I can't imagine anything worse than experiencing the death of one of my own children. I, I, I just can't. I've done several funerals, and one was for a man who was in his 60s. And in the front row of the funeral were his parents, who were in their 90s. And that man wept because his child was gone before him. This 90-year-old, 98-year-old said, I shouldn't have to bury my child. 
and it was the second one he'd had to bury out of two. It doesn't matter what age a parent's worst pain is the death of their child. And what does David do here? He fasted and prayed. He was begging God to change, to take this consequence away and give back the life of the baby. But God said, no. That's a hard passage. It's not the baby's fault. And yet, did the baby suffer? I can honestly sit back and look back a little bit and say, that baby didn't have to live a life of sin, didn't have to be influenced by a, a bad father, and know it's conception was done in such a secret sin, and now that child is perfectly in heaven. It sounds good, but doesn't ease the pain. David hoped for a different consequence. He prayed for a different one. And when the baby died, look what David did. Verse 24 of 12. David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant, gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. The child dies as a result of David's multitude sins, and then David moves on. We'll come back to that in a moment. But that's the first consequence. This child, born, concept, uh, conceived out of this sin, dies. In the next chapter, we come to a very disgusting event for this family of David. Amnon, one of David's sons, from one of the other wives, was attracted to his half-sister, Tamar. This is like Kentucky now, okay? If you're from Kentucky, just laugh, okay? It's funny. Okay, so... (laughs) Said the Kentuckian. Okay, um... Amnon was attracted to his half-sister Taman, and it says he had love for her, but what this is, it's not love, it's a disgraceful, disgusting kind of lust. What he did, he pretended to be sick, and he asked for his sister, oh, could you come take care of me? And being a good sister, she came over and started to take care of him. When she came near him, he grabbed her and raped her. Verse 20. Her brother Absalom asked her, saw her and asked, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep it quiet for now since he is your brother. Don't worry about it. Which sounds like bad advice. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. Good. He's angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about it, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. What actions have been done here? There's a rape of a half-sister. Absalom takes Amnon, rapes his sister, and then Absalom cares for his sister. He brings her into her home to, to take care of her. In his heart and mind, though, grew bitterness and hatred. Lust led to rape. Rape has led to hatred. The two sons of David, Absalom and Amnon, did not speak to each other for two years. For two years, I want to know, where was David? Where was David when his daughter was raped? 
Where was David when these two sons hated each other so much? For two years. David fasted and wept for a baby earlier, but what has he done for his daughter? We know that David was angered when he heard it, but it appears he did nothing. This is a classic example of passive parenting. Passive parenting is when you let everything else happen. Oh, look what they've done. My, look how it's going to affect me. But you don't step into the role and actually lead discipline and take care of children. They complain about the state of their children, the attitudes and actions. But they don't take responsibility for it. And I'm going to say, passive parenting is not real parenting. It is not love. It's selfishness. After two years, Absalom had his servants kill his brother, Amnon, which is consequence number three. The sword has struck the family of David once more. Now to consequence four. Following the murder of his son, Amnon, David and his family wept for Amnon. But that's all they did. After Absalom had his brother killed, he fled to Geshur. He stayed for three years. So two years he didn't speak to his half-brother. Then he had him murdered. Now he fled for three years. He stayed three years. And it says King David longed to go to Absalom, but he didn't go. David is again being passive here. He knows what he should do, but he doesn't do it. Joab, one of his advisors, employed a similar tactic used by Nathan when It's time to confront David. So Joab goes and he has a woman approach David and tell him a story about how she has two sons. One of her sons killed the other and the the rest of the family is pressuring her to give up the remaining son to be persecuted or prosecuted for his brother's murder. David's moved by the story. He promises, bring the son to me and I will take care of him. I will protect him. And then this is what she says in verse 13. Why don't you do as much for the people of God as you have promised to do for me? You have convicted yourself in making this decision because you have refused to bring home your own banished son. He was willing to do it for this lady, but he wasn't active enough as a parent to do it on his own. So David does have his son Absalom. He sends and has him brought back, but look what he says in verse 24. But the king gave this order. Absalom may go to his own home, house, but he must never come into my presence. So Absalom did not see the king. For three years, he's been gone. Then David says, yes, he can come home, but he cannot see my face. He was brought home, but he wasn't welcomed. I think what Absalom needed was acceptance, a word of forgiveness, Ultimately, he needed his father's love, and his father wouldn't even give him the courtesy to be in the same room. Perhaps this was David's most inexcusable sin. And here's why I say that. The adultery with Bathsheba was an affair of a passionate moment. The murder of Uriah was to avoid detection of the sin. But the rejection of Absalom, his son, was steady and determined refusal to give his son what God had given David. God had given David forgiveness, acceptance, and reinstatement. And here David says he can't even come 
into my presence. Well, if you were the son and your father refused to see you, how would that make you feel? How many of you be overjoyed? Oh, great, I'm home. There's bitterness growing again, and through a series of events, Absalom won the hearts of the people and overthrows his father and takes the throne. David had to flee for his life. Now, here's where it gets gross. We saw Amnon did something gross, right? He raped his sister. Well, just as Nathan had predicted, the prophet Absalom moved into the palace, pitched a tent on the roof of the palace, and slept with his father's concubines in sight of all Israel. This family is messed up. This just went from gross to disgusting. There's one more consequence we need to look at. 2 Samuel 18, verse 9. There's a battle between um, Absalom and David's forces. They're trying to recapture everything. During the battle, Absalom happened to come upon some of David's men. He tried to escape on his mule. That's funny to me. A mule. I'd grab a horse. But he grabs a mule. As he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got caught in the tree. The mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. He's got to be from Kentucky. I'm kidding. Okay? He's riding this mule. The mules aren't majestic. But it's got to be majestic enough that his flock, locks are just flowing in the air, and he's riding away, and his hair gets stuck in a tree. How bad and nasty is that hair that he can't get it out of a tree? He is dangling there. He's stuck in the tree. And Joab, the one who talked to that woman and brought, had her come in and talk to David about her son, Joab pursues Absalom, finds him caught by his hair, and he executes him. He kills him right there. David ignored Absalom for two years after his daughter was raped. David ignored Absalom for five more years after that. And once Absalom is dead, look what David does in verse 33. The king was overcome with emotion. He went up to his room over the gateway and burst into tears. As he went, he cried, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The sword has struck the family of David again. What a soap opera style life of David. How many of you ever took a mental look back over your life? You, you see the roads that you chose to travel, the choices you've made, the mistakes and the heartaches, and the problems you created. And how many of you look back and say, man, I wish I could do that different? No, you know, we look back with regrets. I think David has regrets. I, I do. It doesn't say it really here. You can read in the Psalms and it has that sense of he does have regrets. I think David regretted the day he slept with Bathsheba and the day he called and planned Uriah's murder. I hope he regretted his parent, uh, passive parenting over his children. He should have protected his daughter. He should have disciplined his sons. Instead, he has to deal with the growing consequences. Consequences. A thing that our culture hates. It's the exact same thing that David hates. 
how do we deal with consequences of our own? If you get caught stealing a cookie, don't you try to justify it? But I'm hungry. Supper's not for another hour. But you just, I know you made them with love. Don't we try to get rid of the consequence? Looking at David, we can see things that David did right, but many things he did wrong. Let's look at just the things he did right. When dealing with his consequences, first thing David did, he turned to the Lord. He, even when things didn't turn out the way he wanted, he kept looking at, the, at God. David continued to seek God. In Job 1.21, Job says, I came naked from my mother's womb, and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had, and the Lord has taken away. Praise the name of the Lord. I'm going to deal with consequences here, but you know what? God is God. That's what he's saying right there. Worshiping, trusting, and walking closely with God are always the right things to be done. Do you do that in our consequences? Do we, when we are experiencing the consequences, take our eyes off of ourselves, the pain, the troubles, and actually look to God? Because if we do, that changes how we see these consequences. Second thing David did right when dealing with his consequences he put his hope in the truth of God's word, not his feelings. I grew up part of the generation that said, trust your heart. I was taught that in second grade. I remember my teacher um, telling me that. And my mom, when I told her that, she goes, that's bad advice. Trust in your heart. Well, the heart of a second grader wanted to throw rocks at people. The heart of a second grader wanted to shove his brother in a dryer. Trust your heart. The heart is the most wicked thing. Instead, we need to trust the word of God, which is always right, which is always true and pure. David put his hope in the word of God. There's no counsel like God's counsel. There's going to be no comfort like the comfort of God. David trusted that God had forgiven him. When his child was still taken away, he still placed his hope in him. God has given us so many promises. Have you ever done the... It's a great exercise. If you're struggling with something, I just want you to try this. Start writing down the promises that God has given you specifically. And here's a hint. You're going to find them in the Bible. Okay? So start reading and write those promises down. And then when you are struggling with something, pull out that list. But God is still sovereign. He promises to be with me. But God is still powerful. He promises to strengthen me. And start going through that list. When dealing with consequences, we need to hold on to the truths, the promises of God. The third thing David did right when dealing with his consequences he moved forward with his life. This is going to sound a little cold and callous, but it's proper. David refused to give up. He and Bathsheba mourned the loss of their son, and then they went on living. It's a tragedy when we see someone refuses to move forward in life. It is not God's will for us to sit in the corner sitting in self-pity. I haven't experienced the death of a child. I've talked to somebody, and um, their sibling, their sister, lost her son. And um, she left the room exactly the way it was, the bedroom, and shut the door. 
She wouldn't even go in there. In her grief, which I'm not saying is wrong, she should grieve, she pulled away from her family. So much so that her and her husband got a divorce. She pulled even further away that the rest of the kids thought, Mom doesn't love me, all she cares about is that one who's gone. And then she became homeless. All because she refused to keep living. I'm not saying it's wrong to mourn. Absolutely, there's a time for mourning. The Bible tells us this. But we are not meant to sit and stew in this self-pity, in this mourning, in this grief. God has called us to keep living in Him. It's not easy. I'm not up here saying that's easy. But it is possible through the promises that God has given us in His Word. God will help us. It's not God's will for us to sit there. If we look to God, He'll help us. He will help us pick up the pieces of our life. God will get us back on track. He will get us back to the work that He's given us so that we can begin to enjoy life again, enjoying family, friends. In fact, by God's grace, after we've endured through consequences, if you've endured through the consequences, you can actually become stronger and wiser in your faith and actually become more effective in your Christian life. As we live in faith, through the consequences of our actions, we can need to keep a few things in mind. No one can fulfill our earthly consequences really for us. We have to go through them on our own, but we do not have to go through consequences alone. We need to accept our consequences. If you do something wrong, don't try to get out of it. When, when my mom caught me lying, do you know what I tried to do? I lied to get out of the lie, which compiled more and more consequences until I was eating soap that she was pouring in my tongue. If I would have just admitted it, yeah, I lied. I wouldn't have had to eat soap, and I could have become better. We don't have to go through it alone, though. We can have God through us. No one can go through it like God can. God can truly enter the storm of our consequences, the, the battles of it, and help us. Living through our consequences should be a learning experience. I just told you that I got caught lying. Do you know how many times it took for me to learn to quit lying to my mom? About three years. Three years of eating soap. And it was the bar for a while, but then she did the liquid soap. Oh, now, we tried that once with our son, Austin. I, I didn't want to say his name, but I did anyway. So we we, um, we thought, hey, he lied. We're going to do soap. It worked on me, and I grabbed the, the Dawn soap. You know what the color it was? It was green, which meant what? Apple scented. So we put it on his tongue, rubbed it on there, and you he wanted more. Well, that wasn't a good learning experience. So then we got antibacterial orange. And it was gross. Living through our consequences should be a learning experience. It should teach us, don't go through those actions. Don't go back to the I should have learned quicker. Don't lie. That's what these consequences are for. And many times we learn far more during the tough times than any other time. And finally, when living through our consequences, remember that earthly consequences are a temporary experience. Earthly consequences. 
We mustn't keep in mind that these hard times, these consequences we're going through on here on earth will not last forever. When we are in dark and difficult times, it's hard to imagine a day when it's going to be brighter and easier, but those days will come. I would much rather live through the consequences, earthly consequences here, and come for victorious than have to live through the eternal consequence of not being in God's world, in God's life. Because that one is not temporary. I've talked about Horatio before. Horatio Spafford. Is it, anybody remember or know who Horatio Spafford is? Um, in October 8, 9, 1871, the great Chicago fire swept through the city, and Horatio had invested heavily in the real estate, the land there, and the fire destroyed almost everything he had. So he became very wealthy to almost penniless. Two years later, in 1873, Horatio decided his family should take a vacation to England. Delayed because of his business, he sent his wife and four daughters on ahead. November 21, 21st, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic, their ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel, and 226 people lost their lives, including Horatio's four daughters. He got a telegram back once his wife arrived in England, and it said, Saved Alone. Imagine the heartache of Horatio. Horatio then set sail to England to go be with his wife, and while going over the spot where his daughters died, he went and sat down at the piano on the, on the ship, and he plucked away a tune and came up with some lyrics. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, though thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. In the moment where his, in the area where his daughters died, Horatio said, it is well with my soul, soul because of you, God. How many of you know, heard of Paul Harvey? What is he famous for saying? And now the rest of the story. I learned more about Horatio, and so, now for the rest of the story. Following the loss of their children, God blessed them with three more children, two daughters and a son. In February 11, 1880, their only son, named Horatio, died at the age of four years old of scarlet fever. That's five children now. In August of 1881, the Spaffords set out for Jerusalem as a party of 13 adults and three children, two of them are his, to set up a Christian society. This colony, which is going to be joined later by Swedish Christians engaged in charitable work amongst them, and, and what they did, regardless of their religious affiliation, they were serving people. And they started gaining the trust of the local people, the Muslims, the Jewish, and the Christians alike. And then World War I happens. And during and after the war, the colony plays a critical role in doing soup kitchens, hospitals, orphanages, and other ventures. And in the end, in 1888, Horatio died of malaria and then was buried in Jerusalem. Horatio, who went through this horrible tragedy, 
the consequences of buying all this real estate and then having the fire consume it, it wasn't a bad thing, but then the fire happened and his consequences were he had to rebuild. Sending his wife and daughter on that ship well, was not a bad thing. It had consequences when it sunk and his daughters died. Having another son and being involved with charitable work where there's lots of sicknesses and illnesses brought more death into his family. David, King David, could have chosen to live his life like Horatio did. That said, here are the consequences, but no matter what, it is well with my soul. David could have faced all tragedy that came his way, tragedy that was due to his own sinful choices, and faced them with faith, with endurance. Instead, King David, the slayer of the giant, chose to be a coward. I've read this. Our troubles will make us either bitter or better. The choice is ours. Which one will you choose? David and his passive parenting and his reluctance to face his consequences chose bitterness. What are we going to choose? There are people in this room right now who are going through consequences. Maybe it's because of an action you did. Maybe it's because of an action somebody else did and it's pouring onto you. We, we were just talking to our boys last night about some stuff, and uh, we, we told the illustration of this that uh, my father in law, when he was little, there was this big hill in their backyard or their back property, and he dug out until the rock rolled down. And that's what a boy's going to do. It's fun. And when, the tr- when that rock went down, what did it do? It, it squashed, it didn't squash him, it squashed other trees, it left rut marks, it caused devastation. His choices caused this little avalanche until it hit the bottom. Whatever caused the consequence to come into your life, whether it's your choice or not, there is going to be devastation. Sometimes because of our choices, our actions start this avalanche and it hurts other people. We need to accept it. Take responsibility for it. Own up to it. Don't pass the blame. Don't justify Maybe it's the actions of somebody else that has spilled up over onto us and caused damage. And you know what we need to do? Accept it with faith like Horatio did. Maybe you need to reach out today and take hold of the peace that only God can supply. Maybe you need the balm that God offers to bring healing and the comfort in the pains of our lives. Listen to these two psalms. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. In verse 3 of 147, He heals the brokenhearted and bandaged their wounds. Look at the promises. Remember I told you there's promises? Look at these two promises. If you are brokenhearted because of the consequences, the actions you chose to do, and now you've got to live through these consequences, look what God says, I will be close to you. And then look what he says, I will heal you. If you choose to live in him, through the consequences. He doesn't say, I'll take away the consequences. He promises to walk in the consequence with you. When consequences come into our life, consequences from our sins or sins of others, we can choose to turn a blind eye 
We can choose to pass the blame. Or we can stand up, accept it, and say, it is well with my soul. The only way we can do that is if we repent of our problems, of our sins. You cannot say, it is well with my soul if you're holding on to the sin. You have to let that go so you can hold on to the Father's hands. Is it well with your soul? During the consequences of this life, man, it is. It is not fun. It is hard. It is difficult. But we can say it is well. I love that Horatio didn't say it is fantastic with my soul. He didn't say it is splendid. He said it is well. It is sustaining. God is sustaining me. I am content in Him. And through these times, you know what happens later on? This blissful thought that my sins, not in part, but the whole, are gone. Yeah, I can be well with my soul. What about you? If you've never made the decision to let go, to repent, to own up to your consequences, will you come to the one at the foot of the cross, like Greg was saying, and know that he can take your eternal destination and switch it from hell to heaven and then walk with you through this world so you can say it as well? Or will you choose to be like David? Who did it the wrong way. David, the hero of the Bible, who failed. Let's be more like Horatio. Let's be more like those who trust God. If you need to make a decision, if you want to stop and, and come and pray with one of us, we can meet you in the back room. But will you do that? Let's stand. Let's go to God. Let's, let's praise Him and let's pray right now. God, we thank you so much for your Son. We thank you that it is through Him we can truly say it is well with my soul, that the, the earthly consequences may endure, but my eternity is secure. Thank you, Lord, for your promises. Help us remind us of them daily so that we can walk with you in truth and faith. Accept this time as another time of, of worship offering to who you are to us. May this be an anthem of our hearts and our minds, and in Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.